0: Hello, it's your friendly neighborhood host, J.T. Wheatley, back for another episode of the History Comics podcast, this time with part two of the life of Windsor McKay. When we last left off, we dealt into Windsor's uh, birth and uh, growing up uh, in uh, Cincinnati and Chicago, eventually moving to New York City, where he's already making his way as both a cartoonist and vaudeville act. However, he still hadn't quite gotten that one great comic strip that that many required to hit superstardom, and it will take a little while to get there. On January 21st of 1904, Winsor McKay started his first continuing series with Mr. Goodenough, which ran irregularly through the March 4th in the evening telegram about a millionaire seeking a more active life, but with embarrassing results. On April 24th of 1904, McKay tried Sister's Little Sister's Bow for The Herald, which starred his first kid protagonist, though it promptly disappeared. On May 28th, 1904, McKay launched his first color strip with a furious finish of Foolish Phillips' Funny Frolics for the Herald about the antics of two clowns and a showgirl, but one that also didn't take off. On July 24th of that year, he started his first successful series with Little Sammy Sneeze about a child with an especially violent sneeze, so much so he wrecks havoc on his environment when he finally sneezes in the last panel, leading to the adults to kick him out of the area. It was a simple gag that quickly wore out its welcome, ending on December 9th of 1906. It didn't help that the character of Sammy Sneeze was unappealing and never learned or evolved over the course of the strip, something McKay would change with his future protagonists, and notably Little Nemo. However, the panels showing Sammy slowly evolve into his sneeze were an early precursor of McKay's eventual jump into animation. This would be McKay's first popular strip and a hint of greater things to come. On September 10th of 1904, McKay would launch his longest-running strip, Dream of Rare Bit Fiend, which would last till June 25th of 1911, the evening telegram. It would later be revived in the Herald from January 9th to August 3rd of 1913. A decidedly more adult strip, it was an anthology series in which a man or woman experienced a nightmare, ranging from walking the streets naked to being buried alive, only to awaking at the end of the strip where the dreamer blamed having eaten a Welsh rarebit. A concoction of melted seasoned cheese cooked in cream and ale and served over toasted crackers. Sounds pretty good, actually. It became instantly popular, especially as presenting one of the first times McKay experimented with dream sequences in comic strips, allowing such out there sequences as animals wearing clothes and acting like humans, or, sleep, or a sleeping man being invaded by an army of minuscule creatures. Such dream sequences were inspired by Dr. Sigmund Freud, the father of modern psychology, who published The Interpretation of Dreams in 1900, proposing the importance of dreams to the ones of psyche, and the fascinating other artists like Goya and Foucheli years earlier. Rearbit Fiend would also be the future basis for three of McKay's animated films in 1921, The Pet, Bug Vaudeville, and The Flying House. It would become so popular, uh, Frederick A. Stokes produced a 1905 book collecting several of the strips. McKay would even sign a contract to develop a comic opera based on the strip, but nothing came of it. Rarebit was also as significant as on December 10, 1904 of the strip, McKay would make his first suggestion at Little Nimoy with a strip about a boy offered a million dollars to rescue a girl. While doing comic strips, McKay also provided editorial cartoons to the Evening Telegram, the New York Herald's sister paper, under the name Silas, along with spot illustrations for various newspaper stories. McKay was contr- contracted to use the pseudonym for all this work over his mule name as a part of his contract with the Herald. In many ways, this was an early example of disguising how many artists' papers actually employed, making it appear they had much larger staff, and later comic books would copy this practice. Throughout his cartoons, McKay would make regular drug references as alcohol or opium, which was common at the time, while also beginning to show an interest in animation with each strip such as the fluid motion of action and characters changing in size. On January 8th to July 16th of 1905, McKay ran the serial The Story of Hungry Henrietta, which followed a little girl from infancy to early childhood who was plied with food over love by her parents, resulting in her becoming a compulsive eater. McKay would later deny this is inspired in any way by his daughter, Marion, though he would always po- make a point of portraying kids as innocent in his stories. The strip was another early test of the future of animation and experiments, as you would see Henrietta age from a baby to a little girl through the series run. On June 26, 1905, McKay started A Pilgrim's Progress by Mr. Bunyan for the Evening Telegram, which was based on the 17th century masterpiece by English religious writer John Bunyan. The eight- Panel strip was about Mr. Bunyan, who's constantly scheming ways to get rid of his suitcase, which is labeled Doll Care, meant to be a metaphor, only to be thwarted at every try. At one point, even when someone steals it, the suitcase is returned to him. However, it will be a few months later that McKay will debut the greatest work of his career. On October 15th, 1905, Windsor McKay presented a new full page strip, Little Nimoy of, Slum- of Slumberland in the Sunday edition of the New York Herald, with the lead character modeled after his son, Robert. The story was about a young boy who, when he slept, dreamed of being in the magical world of Sumberland, only to be interrupted when he woke, usually from falling out of his bed at the end of each strip. The strip would run until January 23, 1911, and later appear in the New York American as Little Nemo and of Wonderful Dreams, running from the September 3rd of 1911 to December 26, 1914. The Adventures of Nemo, which filled from everything from uh, giants to glass people, was often the metaphor of what Nemo was sleep- was dreaming. The strip was unlike any before and afterwards, and it was here that McKay would use a famous art technique of making objects appear thicker in the background for distance, providing a near three-dimensional effect. The Herald also had one of the best coloring processes in the business at the time, with the Bende process, with McKay providing annotated notes on each strip on how it should be colored. Little Nemoy pr- became an instant success and led to numerous merchandising opportunities, including clothing, playing cards, and games. During the strip, McKay was also slowly revealed details of Sumberland, almost in a dreamlike of a re- unraveling a story, introducing the Princess of Summerland, the daughter of Morpheus the King of Summerland, as a romantic interest, with her looks inspired by his wife Maud. Nemoy's main adversary will be Flip, a green-faced clown who chews cigars, first appearing in the strip on March 4th. However, he wasn't much of a villain, as Nemo would uh, help flip from time to time, awakening his heroic tendencies. McKay would also use the strip to address real-world problems such as pollution when Nemo's adventures went to Mars, which was heavily populated and ruled by a dictator who charged for the words you spoke and the air you breathed. The strip was so praised for its good morals that Reverend R.J. Bob Burdett would single out the strip at a 1909 Associated Press dinner, Little Nimoy remains Windsor McKay's most influential work and a masterpiece by any measure. It is also the pick of his creativity in comic strips that would never be equal, and with his vaudeville, he was now one of the biggest entertainers in America. McKay's newfound celebrity put pressure on his family, including an unfounded rumor that he had an affair with the wife of Mr. Murr, a neighbor, resulting in a rumor of physical assault on Mr. Murr by McKay through two tugs, though there was never proof of it. At one point, McKay was even summoned to testify on charges in court at Coney Island over the incident, where he had stated he had no knowledge of any affair, something all parties agreed to, leading to the charges being dismissed. With his extra income, McKay was able to soothe some of these troubles when he bought a summer home in Seagate on the western tip of Coney Island as a 17th anniversary present to Maude, complete with new furnishings. Just in time, as McKay would soon be busy bringing Little Nimoy to Broadway. In the summer of 1907, Marcus Claw and A.L. A. A. Ellanger announced they were putting together a $100,000 musical production of Little Nimoy with the music by Victor Herbert and a book by Harry B. Smith. It wasn't the first attempt to adapt Nimoy into a play, as producer David Belisacco, playwright Edgar Temple, and composer Manuel Klein had all tried before. For his disincarnation, playwrights George W. Hobert and Henry Blossom wrote the book while Harry B. Smith would replace Victor Herbert in writing the music. Work began on the play in the spring of 1906, eventually casting two, 22 principal roles and 150 chorus parts. Master Gabriel, real name Gabriel Weigel, a vaudeville favorite who previously played in the Buster Brown State Productions, with stars as Nimoy. Which he was able to do as he was 32 years old, but it was a short person and was only 33 inches tall. Apparently, he was so convincing in the role youth activists threatened to protest believing the play was exploiting an underage child until Weigel had demonstrated he had to shave his beard off to perform as the character. In addition to the cast, costume designer F. Richard Anderson crafted a thousand costumes ranging from Giants of the Slumberland to Teddy Bears, while the scenery, loosely based on McKay's art, was designed by T.B. MacDonald and John Corrigan. For visual effects, Hugh Thomas and Globe Electric Company provided special electric lights while Herbert Grissom was the stage director and Max Hirschfield directed music. With all this, the plot was minimized over spectacle, with the creature of a wooden poof was created for it. This mythical creature alone became so popular its name would later be appeared in hit songs and singing groups. On its premiere of September 28, 1908, Little Nimoy was a critical success. Of course, New York Carol was one of the papers giving him high praise and lasted for 15 weeks before a road tour for, for two seasons complete with a specially made 17 car called the Little Nimoy ex- Special to transport the actors, props, and elaborate sets. Unfortunately, the budget ran in excess of $300,000, $9 million today, at a time when the average Broadway show was twenty dollars to $30,000 to produce. And, w- and with such a high budget, it was, they received no return on their investment after two years. This was not due to McKay's efforts, as he performed vo- a vaudeville tour that paralleled the road tour of Little Nimoy to help promote it, while also making $600 a week on his own. He even went so far as to change bookers with when the Keith Circuit, his dead agency, denied shows in Boston during the Lil M- Nimoy tour, prompting McKay to switch to the William Morris Agency, who gladly accepted his superstar cartoonist and booked him for nine weeks of shows, plus an additional $100 a week on top of his original performing fee. While touring, Windsor McKay also brought his son Robert at the behest of the Broadway show's producers, Claw and Erlanger, as it was known that Nimoy's look was based originally on him. Young Robert McKay even went so far as to dress as Nimoy and sit in a small throne at expeditions as audiences filled the auditorium for the shows, which reportedly Robert McKay greatly enjoyed. Little Nimoy finally came to an end in the winter of 1910 after performing in Atlanta and New Orleans, and despite being popular, ended up losing money, of course, due to its enormous budget. Unfortunately, McKay was not able to take the success to to tour in Europe after Little Nimoy ended as the Herald denied him the opportunity, which was one of many reasons he decided to leave for Hearst Papers a year later. His last trip was for the evening telegram would be Poor Jake, about a mute laborer exploited by his employer, Colonel Stahl. However, McKay decided to do what many cartoons did at the time, which was to become a Hearst man. Winsor McCay left Bennett for Hearst's Papers with Little Nimoy was at its peak, with his last story art being a Nimoy taking an airship tour of American and Canadian cities from January 9th to March of 1911, almost symbolizing as a farewell tour for the strip before McKay left. Little did he know he would be restricted even further at Hearst while he decided to try a new venture, animation. Winsor McCay began experimenting with animation when he started creating flip books in 1909. He would credit his son Robert when introducing him to the new art form as he would show his father his own flip looks which was at the time just advertising gimmicks to, for various products. McKay was so not only intrigued but decided to push the animation to a higher standard. While he would sometimes boast he was the first man in the world to create animated cartoons, that is not historically accurate as McKay was inspired by previous animated films like The Haunted Hotel in 1907 and the humorous places of... Fu- Funny Faces, in 1906, which is the first frame-by-frame animated film, and both of these were by James Stuart Blackton. Funny Faces was a series of animated chalk drawings in in which a male and female faces emote and flirt with each other, with Blackton achieving the effect by making the initial drawings on a chalkboard, turning the camera crank once, then slightly changing the drawing after every turn. McKay was also impressed by Emile Cole's and French caricaturist short films, noting that he added fluid motion and linear design to his animated works, such as Fantasmagorie in 1908, which was so popular it was imported to the United States for viewings. Winston McKay began immediately working on his own in the United Animated Works in 1909, but he wanted to push the new medium even further, not just in animated pictures, but providing story and character to the films. By 1910, he had compiled 4,000 animation drawings on rice paper, which he tested on the device similar to a mut- mutoscope. With that, McKay produced his first animated film, adapting his comic strip, Little Nimoy, through the Vitagraph Studios, one of the earliest live-action studios that James Stewart Blackton was a partner in in 1911, premiering on April 8th before he would use it in his vaudeville act. The short, which is a mix of live-action animation, began with McKay, himself making a bet with his colleagues that he could make his drawings move. They naturally believed him to be crazy, indicated in a silent film stop by pointing a wine bottle at his head. Undeterred, McKay goes to his studio to prove them wrong. The short gets to go to one month later, where McCain is seen drawing his little Nemoy characters from Nemo to Flip as they start to actively move, with Flip and Impy starting to fight, forcing Nemo to break them up and then pre- presents a rose to the princess, with the two then sitting down on two thrones inside the mouth of the dragon who flies off with them while Flip and Impy drive off in a jalopy, which promptly explodes and sends the two flying into Dr. Phil. The short was an instant success and would be the first time a comic strip was transitioned to animation, predating Bud Fisher's uh, Mud and Jeff and of course Charles Schulz's Peanuts. Despite his success with the new medium, Winsor McKay would never produce the short films in mass by creating a studio, preferring to experiment on his own over going through the studio system. McKay would labor mostly by himself in each of his shorts, taking his time to further the animation medium. He was worried about the limitation of technology would limit how far he could push it, which would be proven correct later on. With a assess of Little Nimoy, Melinda McKay's new animation was a hit on tour, as it led to him being named one of the top vaudeville acts, making the Morning Telegraph's blue list, highlighting the best actors and acts of the highest rating. So happy McKay was with the public acceptance of his film, he had Little Nimoy hand-colored, a pan-staking process at the time had to be done to each of the 35 millimeter frames that made up the cartoon. He also began work on his next short film, How a Mosquito Operates, for which he produced 6,000 sketches, which was nearly lost when the the cabbie he hired to deliver them to Vitagraph Studios for photographing chose to stop for a few drinks along the way. The police found the cab a few days later in a shantytown where thankfully the drawings were still in good, good condition. The inspiration for the film came from a Rare Bit Fiend Strip from June 5, 1909, and in the original version, a live action and now lost prologue featured McKay and his daughter Marion being pestered by mosquitoes. It then switches to the animated sequence, which shows a mosquito flying around and draining blood from his victims getting slowly bigger throughout. The mosquito itself was depicted with human features such as a small, pointy ears, and a receding hairline and hat, which he would tip to the audience in some fourth floor breaking. Simply put, the mosquito had a personality and a love of showing off, giving it a character that makes it relatable to the audience watching. It was noted for introducing story and character into a cartoon, something that would later inspire Disney Studios in their future animation endeavors. The cartoon was another hit for McKay, leading to him to sell the theatrical rights once again to Vitagraph, but only on the condition it would only be shown outside of the U.S., thus avoiding having to compete with himself when he went on his vaudeville act, which he did during the spring and summer of 1912. Meanwhile, back at his regular job as a comic strip artist from July 18, 1911 to August 29, 1913, McKay produced In the Land of Wonderful Dreams for Hearst Papers, which starred Lil Nimoy and his friends, thanks to a successful lawsuit, allowing McKay to use them. He also created 27 short-lived strips at Hearst like A Midsummer Daydream and The Fall Guy. Strangely, he was even able to return to Dream of a Rare Bit Fiend for the New York Herald from July 19th to August 3rd, of 1913, somehow working outside his Hearst contract. However, all these strips were just filler as McKay was even more focused on animation and creating his greatest ever starring a certain dinosaur. McKay's next animated film would be Gertie the Dinosaur, who even started to make appear- various appearances in his strips, such as in the May 25th, 1913 strip of a Rare Bit Fiend where a hunter shoots a dinosaur. The name of Gertie was derived from the name Bertie, but McKay wanted a female dinosaur. To help with producing the film, McKay hired 20-year-old John A. Fitzsimmons, now an art student, in the summer of 1913, tasking him to retrace the backgrounds from thousands of master sketches McK- McKay produced on 6 by eight and a half rice paper. He also helped mounting uh, finished sketches, ensuring the whole frame was animated from the rocks to the trees, ensuring a true animation effect. Fitzsimmons also would recall many details of working with McKay, noting the erratic schedule as his personal and work life kept him from, from the project several times, such as his regular comic strip or his vaudeville tours. Fitzsimmons also remembered how painstaking McKay was in ensuring the film was as realistic as possible, such as his timing breaths for Gertie with a stopwatch, so that he knew it took 64 frames for the dinosaur to inhale and 32 to exhale. With this film, McKay created the McKay split system to produce it, in which McKay divided the main points of action up and then did the fill-in animation in between. This was a significant difference from the previous animated works as they essentially animated from A to Z. Instead, McKay would draw the significant points of position and major poses in the story, A, E, J, P, and Z, and then fill in the sections in between, creating a smooth transition. This would be another technique that Walt Disney Studios, along with many others, would copy, as it not only broke up the tedium of making the film, but ensured it for superior timing. Strangely, but in keeping with his character, despite his numerous innovation in animation, McKay refused to patent any of his techniques, believing it should be freely shared to help further the art of cartoons, unlike Blackton and Cole, who kept their t- techniques secret as possible, believing they were magicians. However, this would backfire somewhat when John Randolph Bray, a man he shared his techniques with, would try to sue him, claiming McTay actually stole his ideas. Bray himself was an innovator in the field as well, establishing the largest animation studio at the time, along with some important techniques of his own. Most importantly, the use of clear cells with fellow animator Errol Hurd, in which characters can be traced in ink on clear celluloid seats, which were then put on a standard background, thus eliminating having to trace the background with each character drawing. This made the animation much more cost-efficient and would be copied for decades later. McKay countered student in response, able to prove his techniques appeared in Little Nemoid years before Bray claimed he developed them. This resulted in Bray having to pay McKay $65.71 in the final settlement based on royalties McKay should have earned from Bray's own films. Winsor McKay was finally able to produce Gertie the Dinosaur to Vitagraph Studios in January of 1914 for a production, premiering the next month as part of his vaudeville act at the Palace Theater in Chicago. During the show, McKay spoke to the audience explaining how he produced the film, cracking the whip, and acting as if he was giving commands to Gertie as the film played, telling her to step forward, raise her foot, and bow. At one point, Gertie gets upset at the commands, causing her to cry, as she was depicted as a shy creature, another example of McKay giving his animated creature's character. In addition, when Gertie is distracted by a mammoth, Jumbo, she promptly picks him up by his tail and tosses him into a lake, leading her to dance and then throw rocks at Jumbo when he keeps spraying her with water. In the film's finale, McKay tosses an apple at the screen, which becomes part of the film as Gertie eats it, and then McKay himself walks on the screen, becoming an animated version of himself, where Gertie places him on her back as they both bow to the audience. There would be a fake Gertie the Dinosaur produced due to the cartoon's popularity that was also attributed to Bray Studios, but McKay would never take leaking action against them. Go the Dinosaur was another instant success with rave reviews across the board. However, one person who was upset with McKay's interest in animation and vaudeville was his new boss, William Randolph Hearst, who was incensed his new and very well-paid top uh, cartoonist was doing out- outside work like this. As a result, none of McKay's vaudeville tours were advertised in any of Hearst's papers despite his cartoons having a prominent place in them. Reportedly, this was brought to a head when Hearst tried to call McKay backstage in one of his shows to confer an editorial assignment only to be told McKay couldn't come to the phone right now because he was busy. Hearst flew into a rage as a result, canceling all future advertisements for McKay's shows. Granted, Hearst did have a business point, as he was paying McKay a lot of money to provide his papers with top cartoons he was known for, only for them to be tired rehashes of his past work as McKay was now more focused on his vaudeville tours and animation. In addition, Offer Brisbane, Hearst's employee and McKay's editor tried to get him to focus more on serious editorial cartoons, forcing the end of the end in the land of the wonderful dreams on December 12, 1913. This would be a blow to McKay, who preferred creative freedom of comic strips over editorials. By 1914, McKay was even forced by Hearst to sign a contract not to accept vaudeville work outside of New York State, though he was able to tour with Gertie the Dinosaur, being in September fifteenth, when the cartoon was copyrighted, and by December... It was being shown in Seattle. However, he wasn't able to make a trip to Pittsburgh, not because of hers, but at attempted blackmail. Windsor McKay's wife, Maude, was accused of having an affair with Mrs. Lumpkin's husband, when well, McKay, having originally been approached by Mrs. Lumpkin and an unidentified man during his run at Hammersteins, where they demanded money or else she would sue his wife for breaking up her home. Maude would tell her husband that Mr. Lumpkin was someone she knew from Cincinnati 12 years ago and was now harassing her, calling their house four to five times a day and even their children answering the phone at times. McKay replied he didn't have that kind of money they demanded, only for them to retort they knew he made at least $50,000 a year. At one point, McKay agreed to meet the Lumpkins at their apartment and even agreed to pay $500 to leave his wife alone, only for them to greedily then ask for 1000 Disgusted, McKay vowed to stand by his wife Maud and hired a private investigator, John Stitzel, to investigate the Lumpkins. Stitzel was able to document the Lumpkins still lived together despite claiming to be going through a divorce, which complicated things as by law a divorce can't be granted if the couple still live together. Makes sense. The lawsuit would lead to an interruption of in McKay's work schedule as he had to miss the December 22nd through the 24th editions of the American due to his court appearances. Ultimately, it was dismissed due to collusion by the Lumpkins as even their own landlord affirmed they were still living together at their apartment. Following the successful outcome of the trial, Winsor McKay returned to cartooning, drawing a joyful Santa Claus representing Americans' uh, Christmas fun on Christmas Day. Sadly, this was followed by another personal tragedy a few months later, as on March twenty-first, 1915, his father Robert passed away. McKay was able to continue on some out-of-state vaudeville appearances with Hearst's permission as he went to Atlanta on November 15th and in Detroit on July of 1960 at the Temple Theater, where fellow cartoonist Bud Fisher had just performed. Of note, Hearst would form international film shows on December 5th of 1915 and even claimed McKay would be a part of it, but he would never do a short through Hearst, which would include his next significant film, The Sinking of the Lusitania. And we will end here for now as the Winsor McKay will go on to his most ambitious animated film to, get, to date. Though, though it will sadly be a disappointment, but it will once again show that he was one of the true innovators of animation. Look, we gotta talk. Yeah, Thunder Talk. We're going all kinds of sideways with that sweet nerd junk. Woke nerd junk. It's topical. Political. Dare I say radical. We've got all your latest news and reviews. Hot music. And a whole lot of comedy. But it ain't for kids. Definitely mature content. So let's talk. Let's talk Thunder Talk. Thunder Talk is a proud member of the ESO Network. Now it is May 5th, uh, 2022, time for the favorite comic of the week, Batman Beyond the White Knight, number two by Sean Murphy, which finds an aged Bruce Wayne escaping from prison after the events of the previous uh, miniseries, as he's learned that Derek Powers is taking over both his company and Gotham City, along with co-opting one of his uh, advanced Batman suits by a young Terry McGinnis. This is once again one of the best alternative takes of uh, the Batman uh, mythos, merging all the good different characters and now moving in with Batman Beyond. Which, uh, while controversial, I personally have always loved Batman beyond I mean, his character, so seeing him in the uh, Batman White Knight universe is a very cool twist. And it's great to see all the different characters, how they bounce off each of other. And of course, I of everything else, Bruce Wayne now has Jack Napier slash the Joker in his head, and how it's revealed is a pretty brilliant and cra- pretty crazy. And seeing how they that, that dynamic is really great, especially when Bruce Wayne meets up with Harley Quinn, and there's a big surprise there with one of the best uh, twists of all. Anyway, I mean, it's matched beautifully by uh, Sean Murphy's art, which is just gorgeous and one of the best depictions of Batman you'll ever see. And Oh, by the way, Batman Beyond looks fantastic, too. So, all in all, this is one of the best alternative takes of uh, the Batman mythos, a great Elseworlds story, though. It's technically now the Black Label. I still like Elseworlds, but Black Label works just fine. And yeah, just a great read if you like Batman of the nice little self-contained universe. And with that, uh, that's uh, all it for this week. Uh, join me again next week for the third and concluding chapter in the life of the great Windsor McKay. And until then, go out and enjoy yourself with the comic book.